Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm really, really excited to have as my guest today, uh, a friend, Joel Skuntatis, who is just a phenomenal all-around person, but a really, really gifted artist. I met Joel initially through his works that were passed along to me uh, by my sister, Sue, who was a classmate of Joel's back in the day at Hope. So, Joel, thanks so much for your time, man. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I like talking to you, Steve, and we'll let some people drop in on our conversation. Yeah, it sounds like a plan. Joel, tell me a little bit about how you got just your start in creative endeavors. Like, what? when did you know you had an itch just to give birth to images and sounds and words that would be life-giving to other people? Wow. So I'm going to give you two different answers. Okay. The first answer is I was always the kid that liked to make things. Okay. Like, so when I was a little kid for Christmas, for birthdays, I asked for art supplies. I just... I just always like to make things. So I've always had an itch to be creative. Um, and then, you know, I, I went to went to college, went to Hope College with the intention of studying art and other things uh, because no one tells you you can be an artist. And so even though I sort of deep down knew I wanted to be an artist, I took communications classes and English classes and all these other things thinking, Maybe there will be something else in there. Um, um, but I did go off to college pursuing art as a piece of it. And pretty early on in college, I just gravitated towards um, color and whimsy. And uh, I just always liked making people smile through art. And then a year out of college, I, I had spent a year working in an art gallery. I took the plunge and I've been a, a full-time artist ever since. So Joel, talk about what were some of those early images that that people tended to resonate with? Like, how did you know that if your intent was to make people smile, that you were connecting with people on that level? My senior year in college, I was taking a watercolor class and I was painting really uh, mediocre, bland watercolors. That's one piece of the puzzle. Next piece of the puzzle is a friend of mine was student teaching, and she asked me to come do a little art project with her students, and I did. And there was a kid in that class that really loved doing art. Next thing you know, this child um, came with my friend to my studio at, at college, and we painted together. And I, at the time, I was painting really abstract artwork. But I let this uh, young girl go first, and she painted these big sailboats, and as a kid would, but you know, larger than life because I gave her a really big canvas. And then I took that canvas and I turned it into an abstract painting, but with these kid images floating through it. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. So then I took this stack of watercolor paintings I had that were boring and bland, and I started scribbling little kid images over top of it just with pencil i'm like this is more fun and i started exploring this sort of kid-like lens it through my art and i've been doing that ever since so um as i started to show my artwork um not all my work had the kid-like things but all my work always had whimsy to it so as i was uh right out of school and i was showing my work it was colorful and a lot of it had 
this kid-like element. And then some of the things that weren't kid-like still had whimsy to them. Like one of the first pinnings ever sold was called Five Cats and a Mouse. And there were five cats lined up. And of course, there was no mouse because, you know, it, it had been eaten. You know, there's just like little, little funny things like that. As things progressed, you know, I would do an art exhibit at different galleries. I was I started growing in my ability and in my representation. So I showed in galleries all over the country. And I would do a show. And at the opening, they just turned into these really fun parties because people would come and chuckle right? Or smile and start comparing what they're seeing. And, you know, you get enough people in a room all enjoying themselves, it sort of spreads. So early on, I gravitated toward things that make people smile and got um, sort of instant gratification from it because just the nature of how the the, the way I showed it, I just, I, I got a lot of immediate feedback for it. That was a long answer. No, it was a great answer. But so not to stereotype artists or art galleries or the art scene, but that seems really kind of countercultural to a, much of what is out there. Am I oh, reading it wrong? No, you're not reading it wrong. So first of all, let me just say, when I was a freshman in school, my main art professor took my black paint away because I was doing moody art major things. And he forced me to do colorful things and, and shade and whatnot with color instead of gray and black. And so he also helped push me in that direction. So I just want to quick get get that one in there. Just I had, I had mentors along the way that, that recognized that I was wired to do these more joyful, colorful things. Mm-hmm. That said, um, not the whole art world resonated or thought, thinks that whimsical artwork is has the same legitimacy. There's a there's a perception that it's lacking in gravitas. Like it just doesn't right. have like weight of quote unquote re- real art. That's right. And I like to give the example of, you know, when like a comedian like Jim Carrey or Adam Sandler does a does a serious movie for the first time, they do a drama. And people are like, I can't believe he's such a good dramatic actor. And it's, that's incredible. How who knew? And and I always want to say, well, I knew. You can't you can't be whimsical, you can't be funny without having a certain amount of uh, sense of the world. Like it's, it's a, it's a skill set that takes developing. It's just, it's just a different way to deliver ideas and it, and it, and it does take, take skill, but just throughout the arts, whimsy um, is not embraced in the same way. So um, yeah, so I have bumped I have bumped against that along along the way for sure. So Joel, that's that's art as like as joy. Let's talk yeah. about art as worship for a moment because yeah. again, you you and I are we're broadcasting from West Michigan, and although it's not part of my backstory, it's part of yours. Like these deep, beautiful Dutch reform roots that that we cherish, and there are a lot of good things from, and yet. In the in kind of the, the reformed vein, or at least the American puritanical vein, there hasn't been a, a deep appreciation for for color or wonder or art like there is in some other theological traditions. Right. Yeah. Right. So here's my next st- strike. You know. So the other thing is, I I did start exploring the uh, my beliefs, my faith through my artwork. I, I will say it started almost by accident, not uh, that I wasn't a believer. But um, I love painting animals and kid-like things. And so the natural entree for me was Noah's Ark. 
right? So I started painting Noah's Ark paintings, just fun, silly ones. But then I started exploring other biblical stories and it kept going. So now I've got um, biblical, biblically inspired artwork. I've got whimsical artwork. I don't fit anywhere because now I'm even less likely to fit in an art gallery who, you know, that, that uh, isn't sure about whimsy to begin with. And then you throw in faith-based things. But then also on the flip side, as you just pointed out, churches didn't know what to do with me. Um, you know, because I was, I was taking biblical stories and rewriting them from a kid-like perspective adding some whimsy in it's like our is he early on before people knew more about me they're like is he making fun of this is he making mm -hmm. fun of of scripture and so <laughs> it's uh it's funny to think back on that you know I've, I've been doing this long enough now and while i still bump into a person from time to time that's maybe not encountered me and needs to work it through um luckily i have enough years of experience where people know know better some of those early days exploring uh, those sorts of things were really funny. I just, I didn't have a, a home in the sort of general market or in the, in the more church world. Um, yeah. And a lot of churches, um, luckily this is changing, but uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, imagery in churches just it wasn't happening the old school churches didn't do it because of the sort of protestant thing that you mentioned but then the new sort of uh mega church or modern seeker churches sort of kicked all imagery out because they didn't want to um scare off uh newbies who like they like even crosses and certain mm -hmm. symbols got um, removed sure. from a lot of those spaces because they didn't want to um, spook anybody who didn't understand what those things were. And so, yeah, I was a little bit homeless in, in, in there in, in certain situations. Was it ever, was it ever discouraging Joel? Cause it would seem like if, Hey, I've got this, I've got this theme that maybe some people on the, you know, traditional art scene don't resonate with, but then I've got this, this tone of like whimsy and joy and brightness that other people might not connect with. Did you ever feel homeless or were you just like, Hey, this is my journey and it's going to take me wherever it goes. Yeah. It depends on the day. I mean, you can ask me that even now. I mean, along the way I've had these, these moments where I've just found the pocket of people that get it. Um, and then other times where it, it seems to, it seems to miss. And, um, and I don't always want to blame that on the audience. Sometimes maybe the art's just not as solid as it needed to be in that situation. I don't know, but, but certainly um, all the things we're talking about have been this sort of funny things I've had to navigate. Um, uh, you know, I recently did a project called 40 of the gospels and unfortunately, um, it was meant to be released, this exhibit and, and art book, um, in 2020. And I literally finished the project a couple of weeks after we all went into quarantine. So that was a hit against it. But I've also found now that I've been getting out and about, um, uh, amongst all the crowds, images filled with Jesus um, are, seem to be less um, collectible. So people are super happy to buy Noah's Ark or a Peaceful Kingdom or a, um, any number a Psalms rendition of, of something, a Good Shepherd painting, perhaps. Um, but I, I have found that, you know, there's I, I haven't found a buyer for Jesus healing the leper. <laughs>
for instance. What's your theory, Joel? My my theory is it's way too faith based, even for for a lot of um, art buyers. It, like adding Jesus pushes it into the next category of that just seems to be a weird thing for people to hang on their walls. I am still working on building my audience with it after all these years with with Christians. You know, they they um there's still not enough believers who take art, uh put it on in a in a valuable category to the point of I am going to spend money on this. I am going to um make this a priority. So yeah. I don't know. Okay. I'm still chewing on all that one. That that's been one I'm I'm I am unsure about. Then on the flip side, I'll go and I'll speak to a group and I'll use these images in a presentation and they resonate really well. Hmm. So the the disconnect right now with this project has been people really like it, but it hasn't been fi- a financially viable project. I've got a lot of these paintings that took me months to paint sitting in my basement. right now yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. joel so we've talked a little bit about like art as a springboard for joy and art as an avenue for worship but you've also been able to develop a way to have this really kind of curious um prophetic edge in some of your work as well and so you're able to communicate some hard truths even some uncomfortable truths with with image in a way that um you know a, a preacher might not be able to do talk about some of the the ways that the prophetic has has come into your writing whether it's about issues that you care about like um like Israel Palestine or whether it's gun violence in schools what what are just tell pull on that thread for me a little bit yeah, so so I think I got two things going for me in this category, and this is an area where um, the last number of years I've just felt more and more pulled into this area, trying to do things that I, I guess I see as important. Being an artist is too hard of a job to do just as I'm living, so uh, to me there has to be a deeper value to it, and this is one of the places where I found the deeper value. Two things I've got going for me though is one. When you have an art object, it lets you talk about an issue via the object, and it diffuses the situation. So, for instance, you brought up Israel-Palestine. I, I painted a, a painting called Balancing the Peaceful Kingdom on the separation wall, which is a giant maximum security-looking wall that goes around Bethlehem, as in a little town of Bethlehem. And it's a stack of the animals from Isaiah 11 trying to get over the wall. That painting has been so helpful to have conversations about the situation there. A, people find out there's a big wall that some people don't know is there. And then B, they're like, well, why is the wall? And a lot of people may know more of the Israeli reasons for the wall and maybe not the hardship of the Palestinians or the Palestinian viewpoint. They also might not know that the Christian enclave of that part of the world is on the wrong side of the wall, right? So it's like, what's going on here? But the bottom line is, it's a very complicated place. That wall just is not helping. It might help a short-term problem, but it's not helping a long-term situation. And by painting on it and by painting a peace image on it, it's allowed me to have all these discussions with folks about what's going on there. So art acts as this object 
that lets you talk about the object, about the image, and somehow creates civil discourse. I don't know why, but it just seems to. Another thing I think I have going for me in some of my work is this kid-like approach. So when I write text, as I often do on my images from a kid viewpoint, it just somehow gives you license to say, to say some things because kids just say what they see, right? So if, if, if a kid makes a comment about, for instance, in the story of the Good Samaritan, who the other is, they're going to include everybody in that. Like they'll just start making a list of everyone that they think might be different. Right. So who's my neighbor? Well, this huge long list, which in the painting I did recently of that, I, the Good Samaritan has this piece of paper coming out their pocket with this huge list of things. And I think a lot of us, even those who really want to serve our neighbor, might pick and choose who's on that list, mm-hmm. right? Even a little yeah. bit, just a tiny bit. And But a kids kids don't. They um, they just say it as they see it. So, so that's given me some real ability there. Um, and then the final one I'll get at is... Um, some of these take place in situations that are um, almost performative. So for instance, after the horrible Valentine's Day shooting in Florida several years ago, and when youth were rising up and doing these marches and whatnot, there was one uh, that took place in East Lansing, uh, well, I'm sorry, in Lansing, Michigan, our capital. And um, I had an idea, so I reached out to the teenagers who were organizing it, and um, and I brought some teenagers from here, a, a, a young girl, especially from my youth group, who was really fired up about these things, and I had painted a big automatic weapon on a board and had it at the Capitol steps, and I got up and just basically said who I was as an artist, but said, hey, I'd like you to hear from my friend Ava, who then got up and gave this, this beautiful speech of can't do it with one but one can turn to two can turn to four can turn to you know just started in these multiplying and then she took some paint and she wrote her name on this board mm-hmm. and then we put this this easel at the base of the steps and then people came up and they wrote their names in paint and it turned into this beautiful it almost looked like waves it was like water of graffiti and it turned into this beautiful painting it and obliterated this this automatic weapon and it just it became a it was just a sort of a beautiful thing to do that day and we had an object at the end and again it gives you a chance to talk about specifically automatic weapons right so um i have lots of people in my life who are hunters and gun owners and super responsible and like most Americans believe that there should be limits on who can get their hands on certain things and there should be background checks and all these sort of things that are just, they're not crazy. We're coming for your guns um, uh, sort of political statements. They're just like sort of common sense things for safety. And that art has allowed me to step into that conversation. And again, because as art helped diffuse the conversation while we're having it, some of these topics can go sideways really fast with folks. Yeah. I love that you talked about the performative aspect because, and you and I have had this conversation before, but when you read the book of Jeremiah and you read the book of Ezekiel, both both of those guys are trying to communicate really hard messages, but they're using images or performative art to do it. They're using yeah. a, a pot or a linen belt or a clay model of the city or yeah. 
all the all these other things to be able to say, like instead of just coming right out and punching people in the face with a message, like, yeah. hey, let me show you a picture. Yeah, and they're then, artists. They're absolutely artists. Which, as you mentioned, these prophets, I feel like um, one of the things I want to say about prophetic, because it's funny when you talk about prophets and you're saying you're t- doing prophetic art, it's like, ah, I don't quite mean that I'm a prophet. But what I mean, when I talk about prophetic, and I'd, I'd be interested in your definition of it, but it's just being a truth teller. Sure. Being a, same truth and same truth as you hope the kingdom would see it. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in a charismatic tradition and sometimes it, pro- prophetic meant that you were somebody who could like tell the future or like have a very specific word from God about a very specific situation. When I use it generically, prophets, um, they're they're alignment experts. <laughs> they they mm-hmm. point out like where where the arc of truth is going and where the current arc of reality is headed. And then they identify the gap and they say, this is the gold standard. And this is what we've settled for, or this is the plumb line. Like this is what's something that is truly level. And this thing that we're living right now, it's not level. And there's not, there's not necessarily shame to it. There's just a, Hey, this is not as God intended. Yeah. This this isn't the, this is the behavior. This isn't the, the verbiage, or this is violence that is, that is out of scope and out of step with who God is and what God cares about. And the prophet always ends with a question, which is, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's empowering in that regard. I love that. We talk about how, how you continue to keep that press for joy and light and childlike wonder in the midst of a world where we're just constantly bombarded with things that are that are horrifying or intense or anxiety inducing and dark. What, what does that quest look like for you? Uh, yeah. So again, I'll try and I think I'm going to answer this in two ways. The first one is I think I pursue it naturally because it's um, I do actually do a whole talk. Sometime we'll have to do this one on comparing spiritual disciplines to artistic disciplines. So many of the things line up, but, but, creative practices are, are, you could think of them as disciplines. And I participate in these disciplines every day. Today, I was painting an image. I actually worked on some images of a prodigal son uh, painting and an image of Jesus walking on water. So I was, I was thinking about these things today. So I was thinking about faith things today, but I was also thinking about the, the technical things and the, the, certain concentrations and space I need to be in to just make things. So, but these are things I participate in every day. And so I've been on this trajectory. And so it takes a lot to knock me off the trajectory. Okay. The first part is I continue to do it because that is how I'm wired, but also I do it in practice. Like I, you know, I, I happen to be someone who really loves church. Um, which not everyone does these days, it seems. Lots of folks look to different places for spiritual fulfillment. And I just, I find the things that, the rhythms that are almost forced upon me from being a regular churchgoer are really helpful to me. Mm-hmm. A place that you have to show up and and do these things and you're exposed to these things. So the first thing is, I believe in these practices. The second part is a little more complicated. So these hard things come and and you have to ask yourself then, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Right? Am I going to go tribal like so many people seem to be going 
Am I going to try to yell the loudest as so many people seem to be doing? Um, uh, you know, what, what, are, what are my choices here and how do I engage? And so I make a choice to engage with hard things through bright things, through joyful. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that is hard, but it's a conscious choice. I'm currently working on a project, a series of paintings that looks at threats to biodiversity. I believe in God's creation, and I think we're supposed to protect it. That's just part. That's part of my worldview. And um, as I read more and more and learn more and more, it's a really hard show to do. It's a really hard, yeah, it's a really hard thing to do. But I choose to keep going because I think it's an important topic. And like every other topic, I'm presenting it in a whimsical way. So that's just how I. That's how I tell stories. So helpful. Joel, uh, not too long ago, I mean, it feels like it was a long time ago, but not all that long ago, you partnered with Winning at Home and Dr. Emily DeYoung to do a book that is going to be coming out later this year, probably fall, uh, called Peanut Butter Pie. Talk about that journey and what that process was like for you. Yeah. So um, this gives me a chance to tell you, one of my philosophies of art is that art communicates. So, I mean, I, I believe that we read images. And so I love doing books because you've got the words, but you also have the pictures to tell these stories. And so what's fun for me as an artist, as an illustrator, is to work with experts like Emily. They come with these ideas that I may or may not know anything about, and I get to learn about them. And then my job gets to be, how can I help tell this story in a way that makes sense? And how can the pictures help it make sense? Yeah. So. Um, I'll just give one little bit away. Early on in reading the first draft of it, there were these images of sort of this dripping of anxiety, this drip, drip, drip of anxiety and how that drip grows. And so quickly, my mind went to a drip that turns to this trickle, to a stream, to a raging river and and how that can really show and you get swept away by that river. It's just a good image of anxiety overtaking you and that I think we can all relate to, but then you can look at the picture or the pictures and then, and it, and it just makes sense. I think, I, I hope it does. I hope it's helpful. Yeah. Um, but so that was a really cool experience for me to, to take new information and just to try to come alongside it and make it even more communicate even more clearly. So good, Joel. I love what you did with that book because I think one of the the powerful dimensions of your art is that childlike does not translate into childish, right? So it mm. transcends it transcends age groups. So just because it it can be really compelling and bright and fun for a seven year old doesn't mean that it doesn't connect with a seventy year old as well. And they're again not to give too much away, but there are images from that book that like are seared forever into my brain that are super helpful as mm. I try to process the things that uh, Dr. Emily was trying to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Joel, what do you say to people who are wired creatively and aren't sure what to do with it? Like if they say, well, I can't monetize this or I can't like use it in worship as church, but I have this burn to create and I just, I don't know where to go with it. What do, what do you say to people who feel like their, their, uh, their passion may be undernourished and doesn't seem like it has a, a practical in air quotes yeah. outlet? So the first thing is you got to take the practical out to begin with. Now, I I say that as a guy that has to think about the practical because it's literally how I make my living. That said, you got to take the practical out and know that there's helpfulness to it anyway. Doing creative things is helpful. 
again, I do a whole talk on Genesis 1 being made in the image of God. And by the end of Genesis 1, all you know so far about being made in God's image uh, is that God's creative and God's relational is, is how I synthesize. It's like we're told we have characteristics of God, but what do we know what those are? And we know one of them is that God's creative. So I think when we do creative things, you are living into your image bearing. And so for people listening right now, if you've got an inclination to do it, that's the right inclination. You should be doing creative things because that's how God made you. So there's my, there's my soapbox. But then the practical piece of it is, I think you need space and you need time and it needs to be regular. So space, you need to have a somewhere set out in your general world that you can go to, to do whatever your creative thing is. Um, and all the better if it isn't a thing that you have to get a bunch of stuff out for every time. If you can have a permanent space, even if it's a corner, it, it takes away a barrier. And then you just need to do it regularly. It just has to be a thing that you get in the habit of like any other habit. I've met a few too many people who have a great idea for a novel or the or a screenplay or you know the next whatever. And then I'll ask them, it's like, well, how far are you on it yet? Uh, you know, and they're like, well, I, I haven't started. And it's like, well, that, that's that's not helpful. Because <laughs> because by the way, your first draft is going to be terrible. <laughs> right. Right. You got to get going. And um, so, yeah, so time, space. And then, but the bottom line to me is you, you do it because that's you living into your image bearing of God. I mean, a piece, that's one of the pieces of, bearing God's image is doing creative things. That's my, that's my humble opinion. I'm not a theologian, Steve, you're better trained than I am, but does that line up theologically with you? It, it does. And I'm, I'm reading a book right now. It's called glittering vices, a new look at the seven deadly sins and their remedies. And uh. she says that sloth is not ultimately a commitment to laziness. Sloth is a denial to step into the adventure for which God has called us. Oh, I like that one. Uh, so, so the like the the enemy of the, at the root of sloth is a refusal to love, huh. not a commitment to comfort. And and she's got some big word for it that I can't even pronounce. But she says, "I realized that at a point in my life, I had gotten committed to small making, like uh, that I was making that I was making my life and my call and my contribution small." And I think that sometimes we say that we don't want to create because we're afraid to fail or we're, you know, we don't want to do the work of doing multiple drafts. Like I got stuck in this as a writer, like I would write stuff and I would send it to an editor. I'm like, this is gold. Let it be awesome. And they'd be like, <laughs> yeah, you're going to need to write three more drafts. And then, and then literally I would flinch and be like, oh, I don't know if I want to. Well, that's just that that's, that's fear and that's pride. And it's, it's a refusal to love. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People say if the, if the craft is saying something meaningful, then it's, then it's worth doing the work. I've got yeah. a Harlan Corbin, the novelist. I've got a quote of his that my sister, who's an editor, sent me. It's hanging over my writing desk at home. And it says, you can fix bad words. You can't fix no words. And yeah. Um, yeah. so it's like, just just do it. And if, it, do it. if it's as easy as writing, like, uh, I think it was Madeline Langle who said, like, if all you can write is a sentence a day, yeah. write a sentence a day. Madeline and, yeah. And more often than not, it'll you you won't be able to stop at one sentence, right? Because it's hard to get any rhythm after one sentence. And same thing for you. It's like, all right, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do five minutes. I'm gonna do twenty yeah. strokes, like whatever yeah. it is. I'm yeah. gonna do X number of sketches. Madeline Lingle also writes about how the real inspiration happens within the process. 
So mm. she, she rages against the idea of sitting around and waiting for inspiration before you begin. She's yep. like, no, inspiration happens while you are doing it. And so I've learned personally that sometimes I need to do something really simple to start out. If I'm yep. not feeling it on any given day, I do a creative task that I know I can tackle and I can tackle well. And then right. as I'm going and I start getting in the rhythm, then I can start doing more complicated uh, creative things. Right. But we hear these, we hear these hero myths, right? Like about like, uh, Michelangelo is the David and, you know, there's the rumor that like, it was that, that he saw or, or, or Da Vinci or whatever it was that like, I could see it in the block. No, perfect. And all I had to do was carve away everything that wasn't that. And we're like, Oh my gosh, that's how art works. And for right. you to be able to say like, no, 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 you like, I had a buddy who told me once he's like, never fall in love with the line. Like just hold it all loosely. Yeah. Because you don't know what it's going to turn into. Our, like the only book that I ever wrote, we thought it was going to be one thing. And I got two chapters in and the editor is like, this is something completely different. It's as good. In fact, it might be even better because you're more excited about it. But we needed to get 5,000 words into it to actually get yeah. a pulse on where it was really headed. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Yep. Total sense. Got to do it. We'll go back around to what you say. It's like, you just got to do it. So. Yeah. And it can take any form. Creativity can take all sorts of forms. You don't have to aspire to be one thing necessarily. It's but it's 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 the just act of being creative that you need to aspire to. Yeah, I mean, look at um both Joseph and Daniel. Like who are who were those guys? They were they're governmental administrators, but they were they were creative governmental administrators and the processes that they created helped advance structures and save people's lives. And so I think yeah. that you're right. Sometimes if our understanding of creativity is too narrow, we'll stop short of all that it is that God wants us to reflect about his wiring and God's glory in, in our lives and in our work. Mm. That's good. Joel, thanks a ton for your time. If people want to learn more about your art, where can they go? If somebody wants to buy one of your 40 paintings, where do they yeah. go? So the two best methods these days, one is joelschoontannisgallery.com that's a big one joelschoontannisgallery.com and the other would be joelschoontannisart on instagram so instagram joelschoontannisart you know if you start putting my name in it'll pop up on the google i've had different websites and you you can i i've, I've never been one of those people that googles themselves to see what's out there but one right. of my daughters did recently so I'm like, I, got, I think I should see what, you know, is there anything funny out there? And it, it nothing funny, fishy, but it is funny that like random newspaper articles or things that I might be quoted it or just it's like, oh, how did this pop up this high? Pretty high up in those things. You can find uh, those main sources if you put my name in. But really Instagram and um, that one website are the best options these days. I th think I still have a Facebook page okay. you know i like so many people have uh, uh, abandoned facebook by and large even though it still exists <laughs> fair enough fair enough well joel thanks so much for your time and again if you're not familiar with joel's work i can't encourage you strongly enough to go and check it out uh, thanks so much for joining us and we'll catch you next time thanks for listening to hope through the hard stuff if you liked what you heard please remember to subscribe to it rate and review it and then share it with others Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.